Father in heaven, I pray that you would apply the truths that we sang and the truth of Jeremiah 32 to our hearts now. We ask you to come, Holy Spirit. Help me to be faithful to this word, and I pray that its effect would be beyond what I can imagine. Just like you take five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000, you can take this message and do exceedingly and abundantly more than I can ask. But I ask for salvation. I ask for the strengthening of the saints. I ask for the stabilization and deepening and broadening of this church. I ask for guests that they would meet you in a fresh and enlivening way. I pray that all of us would be made more durable in the faith because of this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the descriptions that this generation, say, under 60, um, if you're 63, you're the oldest baby boomer, and, and I am. And so I'm thinking of people younger than me when I say what I'm about to say, namely that it's not a generation, me, and that it's not a generation that would typically be characterized as enduring, marked by the gift of endurance. So if people wrote down baby boomer or baby buster or X, uh, traits, enduring, durable, strong, persevering, sticking it out, staying in it, wouldn't be on the list, near the top. And I want to get it on the list. Okay? That's my, my goal, uh, that I would be used by God to help the other things that will come into your life to get it on your list. The generation older than us, it's generally on the list. The, 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 the Great Depression generation, the, the, war, war, the World War generations, that tends to be on the list. Now, they had other weaknesses. Uh, they're not all that great relationally. Uh, they don't usually go together to be pass through a lot of hard times, stick in there and last, and then be real warm and tender and lovey-dovey. They don't, they don't tend to go together. They can, and that's a wonderful thing when they do, but in general, um, things get divided out, unfortunately, like that. Now, I'm assuming that when Jesus Christ comes into a person's life by the gospel, and they see him as their substitutionary punishment, and all of their sins are on him, and because of their union with him by faith, that burden is lifted, and they see him as the righteousness that God requires, and they can't produce, and that's totally satisfying the Father's heart toward us, then that lift, that's lifted off of us, I'm assuming that has a really profound effect on whether you can last, whether you can endure. So this is a, a gospel issue. The text was, was about the new covenant. The new covenant is the agreement between God, Christ, and you that Jesus lifted up at the Last Supper. Remember, he lifted up the cup, representing his blood, and he said, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So, when you believe on Jesus, the agreement is, I'm going to give you eternal life. And there's more to it than that. And that's where we're going to go eventually. But my goal in getting in the new covenant mindset is all about helping you, most of you are younger than I am, helping you become more enduring, more tough in the hard times and less likely to bail on faith. So enduring in faith, enduring in ministry, a hard time in ministry, a a lean season in ministry. Will you bail? Will you quit? Marriage, a hard marriage. Will you stay? Or will you say, I'm done, I'm out of here? Or a hard church situation, an imperfect church. There aren't any other kind, and so are you going to constantly jump from imperfect church to imperfect church? Uh, An embattled friendship. Was good for a while, and now, shoot, it's just not as good as it was. And you say, okay, I'm just not going to invest in that anymore. A mission field. This is one of the hardest things. Will we stay? Somebody asked me last night when we were having dinner, do you think, you think that, that era of giving a life is, is over? And, and you can just give ten years now. And I said, no, it's not over. No, it's not over. People can grow up. They can become like trees planted by streams of water. They don't always have to be cut flowers. So I'm here on a little crusade to toughen you up and and make you last and send your roots down and keep you in your marriages and keep you in jobs where you ought to be, even though they're hard, or churches or ministries or friendships and the faith and make you a kind of rugged saint. Our church is 138 years old. And I've been there for 29 of those 138 years. This church is four, five, four years old. And we're thrilled that Sean is here and Dana's here. And many of you are part of this this church. And it's a baby church, like a baby church. And And when I think of the blessings that are coming to me and my family for 29 years at this 138-year-old church that flow to me and that flow out from Bethlehem to many, I thank God for 26 Swedes who in 1871 did this. They did this. I'm just so thankful. And so my mindset here is, Lay a good two-decade foundation for the centuries. I don't know when Jesus is coming. Just plan as though he's not. And want him like crazy. Okay? He may not be here for a couple hundred years. And would that this church would be. And full of faith and full of power and full of joy. and Full of fruitfulness in a couple hundred years because of the foundations that were laid here. Because some of you were here for 50 years. Some founding members were here for 50 years. So some of you young people, just think that way. There's just so much change in the, in the mindset of America. Everybody's going to have five jobs. and Every computer is out of date within about two years. And 
and just, oh, change, change, change. Well, add to all that and the goodness of it in many ways that there's going to be some stability in my life. And I'm going to add it to every relationship that I am in. So the first thing I'm going to do is give you a little overview of that idea of endurance in the New Testament, and then we're going to tackle this, this text through some stories that I'll tell you, and then we're going to do some pretty serious uh, picking apart of those verses and see if we can keep it in the time frame. Here's some text. I'm just going to douse you with some endurance text. So you can say, well, what do you mean biblically? When you, when you use that word, what do you have in mind? And I'll just read you some sample texts. I'll read them so fast you won't have time to look them up. Here they, here they are. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's the sort of thing I have in mind. So if you're hated for being a Christian, you're just going to quit. I'm okay. I didn't sign up for this, and I'm out of here. I'm going to do something easier than Christianity. Or... As for what was sown on rocky ground, endures for a while, and then tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word and immediately falls away. So there's the opposite. Endure for a little while because suddenly something comes. Or, this is Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Or 1 Corinthians 4.12, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. Or uh, 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you, but what is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted or tested, same word, Tempted or tested beyond what your ability is, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may what it? That's a really easy question in this context. That you may endure it. So you're not going to get anything God won't enable you to endure. Be hard. Or uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things, believes all things, Hopes all things, endures all things. It does. Love does that. It's a love message. Or Colossians 1.11, praying. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Or 2 Timothy 2.12, we endure. We will, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Or... Revelation 13.10, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Another closely related word is the word steadfast. Don't use that word as often, but steadfast. James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Or 1 Corinthians 15.58, I love this verse. Therefore, my beloved... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We wouldn't say that if it didn't look like it was in vain sometimes. And so steadfast, immovable, always abounding. If, if trees are moved every year, they're not going to be like that. Trees stay and they get big and strong and 
Hundreds of people can sit in their shade. That's what I want to be. When the sun is blasting away at people's lives and burning them up, I want them to come under my wings. Don't you get old and be like that? By getting near Him, it's like being in the shade on a hot day. And look, there's some fruit on those limbs. I think I'll try that. That's good. Don't you just want to be that for people? Well, you can't if you just jump around all the time. It won't happen. Okay, now a bridge to, to our text. Romans fifteen four goes like this. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction in order that through the instruct in order that through the endurance and encouragement of the scriptures you may have hope. Endurance of the scriptures. Endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures you will have hope. So I'm that's why we're in Jeremiah, because that's one of those scriptures that give you hope and endurance. So it's been read already. I won't read it again right now. We'll come back shortly and read it. But I'm going to uh, give you a four-line poem I wrote. I'm probably going to say it in this sermon eight times, maybe, uh, six, seven, eight times. I forget how many. Uh, and enough that it might actually stick. We, we might actually memorize it. So I, I have given a form of this sermon 13 years ago, and, uh, and I still remember it. So here, here's the summary of the, of the sermon, and it's all about endurance without using the word. Um, what, what is sustaining grace? That's the question. What is the grace that enables you to last, enables you to endure? What's enduring, sustaining grace? Not grace that bars what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain, and then in the darkness is there to sustain. Now, the first one, it's got a lot of negatives in it, so it's hard to understand what in the world he just said. I'll say it again. So, what is sustaining grace? What is enduring grace? Not grace that bars what is not bliss. I'll stop there. Let's make sure we... What is he saying? If I believed grace were that which barred, stopped, hindered what is not bliss, I would be unrealistic, naive, and unbiblical. Grace does not stop what is not bliss. It doesn't. It does not stop what is not bliss from coming into your life. So, start over. Not that which bars what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain. And then in the darkness is there to sustain. That's my definition of sustaining grace. And I'm going to tell you three or four stories to illustrate what I mean and why God's sovereign sustaining grace 
is so encouraging and such good news. So this is a backward sermon starting right now because you're supposed to exegete the text first and then tell the illustrative stories. So I'm going to do it backwards. I'm going to give you all the illustrative stories up front and then we're going to look at the text in closing. Okay, so for whatever it's worth, that's the way I have felt led to do it. Bob Ricker, former president of the Baptist General Conference that we're part of, uh, told this story when he came to our church at the 125th anniversary of our church in 1996. And he said that at that time, I think it was 10 years ago, so now it would be 23 years ago, his daughter was driving and had an accident and was thrown from the car and was lying unconscious on the side of the road and turning blue and couldn't breathe. Behind her car was another car that quickly pulled over when the accident, I don't know the details, pulled over, and it was a doctor. And the doctor had in his pocket, I don't know what these are called, an emergency trach thing, okay? And he, he risked his practice, right, legally, and thrust it into her throat. And, and she was able to breathe, and she lived. And now Bob Ricker is standing at her marriage. Uh, I forget how many years later that was, probably four or five years later. And, and he's marrying his daughter, who's alive and fine, off. And during it, he, he, he reached over, he touched the side of her neck, he said, those little scars there are tokens of sovereign grace. In other words, God did that. God had that doctor back there. God had that device in his pocket. God gave him the courage to use it, and God brought you through. Now, here's, here's the puzzling thing, the provocative thing. If, if God can see to it that a doctor is driving behind the daughter, if God can see to it that he's got a little trait thing in his pocket, if God can give this man the courage, he could have prevented the accident. The exact same providence, the exact same power that we're praising him for. You arrange for a doctor. You arrange for trade. You arrange for hands. You arrange. Well, why didn't you just arrange for the accident not to happen? Because sustaining grace is not grace that bars what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our troubles and pain, and then in the darkness is there to sustain. That's why. Story number two. Abraham, my son, was 16 years old. He's now 26. And Barnabas and Talitha, who was one at the time. Um, no, the math doesn't work there. She's 13 now. So this is 12 years ago. So Abraham would be whatever. 28. What is Abraham? Close. I have four sons. I can't remember their ages. Um, 
So Abraham, Barnabas was 12, I think, and Talitha was 1. That's what I have written down here, 16, 12, and, and 1. They're driving with their mother. I, I'm not going. I forget what I'm doing. They're driving to South Carolina from Minneapolis, and they're, in Indi- they're about an hour south of Indianapolis on a Saturday afternoon trying to make it all the way, to, I think, to Knoxville. And, and uh, the, the car breaks down on, on the freeway, and the radiator is shot. It's Saturday afternoon, and there's no man to be a man here and solve the problem. And it's a, a, a wife, a 16-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a 1-year-old girl. And she's sitting there thinking, oh, what am I going to do? And a man pulls up behind her, and it's a farmer. And he looks at the car, and he says, she says to him, well, I just think we need a motel because probably nothing's going to be open until Monday morning. And... and uh, if you could help us maybe get to get to a motel and freeway in every direction. And he said, well, you want to stay with me and my wife? Now, what would you do? You're a total stranger. And, uh, and he could tell her hesitancy, and he says, you know, the, uh, the Lord says that if you do this to people, it's like doing it to him which raises Noel's interest. And she said, she said, well, could we go to church with you in the morning? It's like a test. <laughs> and he says, well, if you could stand a Baptist church, like <laughs> throw me in the briar patch, right? <laughs> so they go to the house and get put up at the house. Uh, he drives Monday morning all the way to Indianapolis, buys a radiator, and puts it in. He's a retired uh, air mechanic. Puts it in for free. And in the meantime, my son Barnabas, who's the only one of my sons who likes to fish, pulls out his fishing rod from the car and goes to this dinky little pond on the farm and catches a 19-inch cat which made his entire summer. <laughs> and they're off and on their way um, mid-morning on, on Monday, having gone to church and made a friend and caught a fish and not paid a big bill. And you look at that and you say, if God could arrange for a farmer to show up, if he could be a mechanic, if he was generous, if he's even a Baptist, has a pond with a big fish at the bottom of it, God could have arranged for the radiator to just last until Knoxville. The same providence that puts all those pieces together could have arranged for But sustaining grace is not grace that bars what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders orders our trouble and pain and then in the darkness is there to sustain. That's story number two. Um, I'm going to skip story number three. Story number four is um, this old Bethlehem church founded in 1871 and in 1885 burned down. This is a test. So you get your first building in a you know, a year or two, and, and five or six years later, it burns down. Not only did it burn down, but um, the, the fire department came, and the men, and this is 1885, 
everything is done through, 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 through like this, right? There's no fire hydrants with automatic water pressure. And so they're up on the roof, and the entire roof caves in, except for the little patch where the firemen are standing. <laughs> and add to that, that within a year, in fact, I think it was six months, the second congregational church, one block away, which is where we are, sold them their building for $13,000. And they had a building within a year. And they stayed there for 117 years till we tore it down and built a, a, a different one on the, on the same site. Now, he, he, the, the, he kept the roof up for the firemen, and he provided a building perfectly suited for them for the next hundred years, and he, he could have prevented the fire. Same thing. But sustaining grace is not grace. To borrow it is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this. The grace that orders our trouble and pain, and then in the darkness is there to sustain. It's time for the text. Enough stories. <laughs> Get the idea that... Uh, the, the thing that makes you laugh, the thing that gives you sustaining grace is not protecting you from the difficulties of life. It's being there in them. And you've and you got to believe that he's going to work this for good. I don't see the catfish right now. I don't see the radiator being fixed right now. And that's what faith is. Faith can't see there's a catfish down there someday to be caught or that there's a farmer going to show up someday or that... I'm going to get married, and this little scar is going to be beautiful to everybody because it's life. You can't see those things when you're unconscious on the side of the road, which is where some of you are probably right now. Okay, so back at, uh, let's go to Jeremiah 32. You got a Bible? Let's get our Bibles open now because now I'm, I feel I'm at home. I don't feel at home telling stories. I, I feel at home when my, when my Bible is open. Jeremiah chapter 32. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city, which you say, it's given into the hands of the king of Babylon by sword and by famine and by pestilence. We'll stop there. You say, you say this this people is given into the hands of the king of Babylon. Well, that's true. Um, by whom? Given into his hands by whom? Verse 37. Behold, I will gather them. This is God talking. I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them. Okay? So now we know who did it. Now we know why there was an accident why the radiator broke down. This people are in bondage in Babylon because God sent them there. In this case, it's punitive. Not all the bad things that happen in your life are punishment. Some are, some aren't. Some are chastisement and some are testings and don't correspond to anything particular that you did. So God has got them in a hard place. He did that. And he says he's going to reverse it. He's going to bring them out. I have driven them to these foreign lands, verse 37 says. I have sent them there. 
Grace is going to triumph shortly. My, my question practically now, applying this at our, at our personal level, since this is a new covenant text, can make a new covenant. People in, people in this room, most of you, I presume, are trusting Jesus to forgive your sins and provide you eternal life and the righteousness needed for acceptance with God. You're trusting and you're in. How do you know? How do you know you will last? How do you know you will be sustained? How do you know that you will wake up a believer tomorrow morning? What's your confidence? He who endures to the end will be saved. He who throws his faith away and makes shipwreck and goes off and lives like the devil the rest of his life won't be saved. Proves that he never was saved. So right now you've got faith. As far as you know, you've got faith. What makes you think tomorrow you'll have faith? Where's your confidence in that? And if you try to say, well, I've been on this trajectory for a good long while and the likelihood of my being off of it is pretty small, and so it's really a probability judgment, that's not going to carry you very far. And the answer surely will need to be sustaining grace. God's going to keep you a believer. God's going to keep you a believer. That's what we're going to see here. Um, It's called... Sovereign grace, sustaining grace is sovereign grace, gets you over all the obstacles, keeps you believing. I wonder if you've ever sung here, oh, to grace, how great a debtor, grace, oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let your goodness like a what? What's a fetter? Somebody tell me. Yeah, Really? I don't know about horses. I think it's you said shackle. What's the most common word for fetter? Like a chain. Maybe I'm wrong. I think it's a chain. It's like a, whatever binds you. Yeah, you can keep the horse going like this, I suppose. Um, bind something. Binds. Let your goodness like a fetter. Daily bind my heart to thee, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Next. Let your goodness make my heart. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. What an amazing prayer. What an amazing prayer. You, You pray like that. My heart is prone to wander. Lord, chain me to yourself. Do you pray, seal my heart, make an unbreakable bond, keep me, preserve me, defeat every rising rebellion in me, overcome my niggling doubts, deliver me from every destructive temptation, nullify every Fatal argument against you. Expose every demonic deception in my heart. Tear down every arrogant argument that starts rising up. Shape me, incline me, mold me, master me. Do whatever you got to do to keep me. Now that's a theology praying there. And it says, without your keeping, I'm a goner. My heart is just leaning away. 
because that's the fallen person I am in my own nature. By grace, I'm being drawn always back to God. If he takes his hand off, this sustaining, keeping, persevering, enduring grace, I'm done for. It's not the trait of endurance in the Christian life is not a native-born character trait, like, oh, maybe Swedes are good at it and others aren't. Like, that's not what's being talked about. This is God relentlessly building into you a holding that keeps you in Him. So, here we are at verses 38 to 41. Let's read them again. 38 to 41. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them... One heart and one way that they may fear me forever. This is all about keeping and persevering here. For their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I may not, that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. I've got to tell you, this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. This is awesome. What God pledges to do for his own is awesome. I think I've got four or five just quick observations. Number one, God promises to be our God. Verse 38, they will be my people. I will be their God. In other words, I will use all of my godness to be for them. When God is your God, when God says, I am your God, he means, I'm there for you. All of me, all of my power, all of my wisdom, all of my love, all of my universe-controlling authority is for you. I'm your God. Don't go after any idols. Don't go after money. Don't go after power and prestige and praise. I am God. I'm for you. I'm there. I'm working. That's what I am your God means. Number two, God promises to change our hearts and cause us to love Him and fear Him. Verse 39, I will give them one heart. And one way that they may fear me always. And look at the middle of verse, or second half of verse 40. I will put the fear of me in their hearts. God does not deliver the message of his grace to you and then fold his arms and say, now, I will see what they make of it. 
Let's see if they believe it. Let's see if they fear. Let's see if they love. Let's see what their response is. It's not what this text says. This text says, I will give them one heart. He's doing heart transplant surgery here. I'm putting a heart in these people. And that they may fear me Always. That's my design and my deed. Verse 40 in the middle there. I will put the fear of me in their hearts. He is not watching. He's not waiting. I wonder if they're going to fear me. He's putting. This is the meaning of the new covenant. The old covenant was what? Gave the law and they broke it. And he says it's not going to be like that. I'm going to make a covenant and it can't be broken because I'm controlling the break power. I'm putting the fear of me in their heart. I am securing all the conditions of the covenant. I make them happen. When God says, you must believe, you must fear, you must love. And then he says, and you are totally secure. There's only one way to do that. I'll secure the conditions. It's exactly what this text says. I will put the fear of me in their hearts. That's number two. Number three, God promises that he will not turn away from us and will not turn away from, and we will not turn away from him. Verse 40. Look at verse 40. Get this. this is, these are real words in the Bible. These are not my words. These are right there. You can see these. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Here it is. That I will not turn away from them to do them good. That is, I will stay with them and do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. And here it is again. So that they will not turn away from me. He's not folding his arms and saying, okay, they came to me. I'm going to watch and see if they persevere. I'm going to see whether they stay with me or not. He says, I am going to not let them turn away from me so that they will not turn away from me. That's the meaning of the new covenant. That's what Jesus died to accomplish in your life, new covenant believer. So many Christians have a theology that's basically ignorant of the new covenant. They just function in the old way. Like, here's God. He's got some rules and some laws and some commandments. He gives them to me. He watches to see what I'll do with them. If I keep them, I'm okay. And if I don't, I'm not. And it's just a simple human-to-human relation. (laughs) It's all it is. There's no divine power in it. And this text is saying, wait a minute. That's the old covenant. It's like the Old Covenant. The New Covenant is, I require that you fear me. Now, I'm going to give it to you. I'm putting it in your heart. So if you're a believer, you need to be taught by this text, that's how I got saved, and that's how I stay saved. And it's the stay saved I'm concerned about here, mainly. How do you know you're going to be a believer tomorrow? How do you know you're going to wake up not spitting in the Lord's face? I mean, why wouldn't you? Because he's going to see to it that you're fearing him. 
I will not let them turn from me. I will put the fear of me in their hearts. They will not turn from me. Let your goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. You remember Luke 22, 32, where Jesus says to Peter that he's going to deny him three times. And then he says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Remember the next thing out of his mouth? When you have turned, strengthen your brother. How do you know he's going to turn? I prayed for him. And God's going to make him turn. That's what I asked God to do. I mean, what did he say when he prayed for him? He said, Father, don't be too strong with him now. Don't, uh, don't really get totally in his life. Um, just do a whisper. Don't do a shout. Just... Ugh. That's not the way he prayed. He said, God, I love this man. We've ordained that he's going to deny me three times. He's going to deny me three times. I said, Father, keep him. And when he looks, when I look at him, I'm going to look at him. When I look at him, break him. And then take him and make him a rock. And he did. And that's what he, Jesus intercedes for you every day. What do you think he's doing up there when it says in Romans 8, 32 and 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised. Yes, who intercedes for us. What's he doing? It's not saying. He's saying, Father, see his hand? That's what I bought for them. Keep them. Keep them today. They're going to be so tested today. We have ordained that they be tested today. And I'm asking you, Father, just like Peter. Remember Peter, Father? You kept him. Keep them. So that's number three. Here's number four. Finally, God promises to do this for you with the greatest intensity imaginable. This is where it gets off the charts good. I'm going to challenge your imagination here to to contradict me. I want you to try. Okay? Here's what I'm saying. Let's read verse 41. And I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my Soul. So, he's going to put the fear of God in us so that we cannot leave him. He's going to make us sustained, enduring, strong, abiding, unflinching, unwavering, abounding in the work of the Lord, steadfast, immovable. I'm doing that for you. And how's he doing it? He's doing it with joy. That's the first thing it says. See that at the beginning of verse 41? He rejoices over them to do them good. So God is not half 
hearted in keeping you. And I, I jumped the gun. I went to the end of the verse to get half-hearted, didn't I? Or not half-hearted. Because at the end it says, with all his heart and with all his soul. Now, here's my, my pro- provocation, my challenge. I challenge you right now to conceive of a power of emotion, a height of emotion greater than this. The joy of an infinite God saying that joy is being exerted with all of his heart and all of his soul. Raise your hand right now and stand up and tell me if you have even a possible greater emotional energy than that. Okay? Any taker. I'm, I'm happy to discuss this. Because I think I've got such a close case here, I'm not the slight, slightest concerned that anybody's going to come close to saying... I can imagine an emotional engagement that's bigger than all of an infinite heart and all of an infinite soul. That's the meaning of infinite and all. Believer, unbeliever, it doesn't get any better than this. The God who made the universe is saying that in the new covenant, I am for you with a keeping, sustaining grace to order all your troubles and all your pain and there in the darkness to be there and sustain you. I am for you and I am for you with emotional joy that is beyond your imagination. So many of you struggle with whether God is for you. I, I, we were talking with a group yesterday. That was the very first question that we were, we were in a campus house over there talking with, with student workers. The very first question was the, the, the wrestling with whether I just feel so beat down by the law. How can I how can I get into the gospel so that I'm I'm more hopeful and happy as a Christian instead of just constantly feeling God is against me and telling me to do stuff and disappointed with me and and so on and I'm just pointing you to one of the most glorious verses in the Bible verse 41 of, of Jeremiah 32 and understand that it's in the new covenant and understand that Jesus lifted the cup and said this is the new covenant it's in my blood which means that anybody here who is willing to just say blood of Jesus be my all blood of Jesus cover all my sins blood of Jesus forgive me righteousness of Jesus be my clothing I am hopeless in myself I'm a loser in myself I'm prone to wander in myself but Jesus you offer yourself this is what we're going to sing about now and what we've been singing If that's what you do, you just give up on yourself and throw yourself on Him for mercy, that verse counts for you. The whole Bible counts for you. And this is one of the best verses of all. 
God rejoices over you to do you good with all His heart and with all His soul inside the blood-bought new covenant. If Satan gets in your face this week and tries to lie about you and discourage you and accuse you, stick him with this sword. Get out of here! Piper didn't say this. God said this. You can't stand before Him. God is 155% for me, this text says. All His heart, all His soul rejoicing to keep me from you, Mr. Satan. So be gone. And And then sing a hymn and go out and love somebody. Father, I pray... That this, this generation, and I mean me and everybody under 60 and, and even those older that still battle, I pray that we would sink our roots down into sovereign grace. Not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain. And then in the darkness is there to sustain and keep and stabilize and make steadfast and hold us and never let us go. Oh God, what a power, what a rootedness, what a firmness comes into the life of the believer who gets verse 41 and 38 and 39 and 40. Lord, get it into the hearts of your people here, I pray. Into the heart of the city. Indeed, take it to the nations, we pray in Jesus' name.